Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a working film and TV editor. For the last eight years, I've done more than 350 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris Effects products for more than 20 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you great filmmaking content. Today on Art of the Cut, we're talking with brothers Sean and Ryan McIlwraith. They are editors at Saturday Night Live and have edited many of the digital shorts that have gone viral over the last few years. Sean's been on the show as an editor since 2013 and also cut episodes of That's My Time with David Letterman, The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon, and segments of NBC's New Year's Eve show. He's currently cutting a feature film with some SNL alums. Ryan's been at SNL since 2018 and has been an editor there since 2019. He's also cut on That's My Time with David Letterman, It's Bruno, and The Hardest Job in Sports. Both brothers also cut short films and TV spots. Before we hop into our discussion with Sean and Ryan, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for macOS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free no limits 14 day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen. And for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, check out all their tools, including Sapphire and Mocha Pro, at borisfx.com. Also, if you want to read this interview with great visual support, go to aotc.borisfx.com slash art-of-the-cut. That site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. You'll be able to see a lot of the clips that we're discussing on this interview on that site. And now my discussion with Sean and Ryan McElraith about the editing of Saturday Night Live. You sent me a little list of some great shorts, all of which I think I'd seen, except for maybe one or two of them on the show itself. Uh, is there anything else that you guys do for the show beyond those uh, short pieces? So back in the day, I used to do there. I actually started at that show as an intern, like a post-production intern. And I worked my way up from like assistant editor to finally editing. But the first thing I edited for the show was like their promos. So they do like Tuesday, we call them Tuesday promos. They do them with, with the host and they're almost like mini pre-tapes themselves. And they were just so, they, I actually used to say they were harder to do than the actual pre-tapes because they would like, they would shoot with the host starting from maybe like, you know, 2.30, 3 o'clock. They would wrap at 4.30, 5 o'clock and you had to have a 15 second promo ready to go to the network that was going to play, you know, during like the voice or something like prime time that night. I used to do that. And that was actually like 
the best training to move into the pre-tapes. But I used to also co-produce a, a digital series, like a behind the scenes. It was called Stories from the Show. But other than that, Ryan and I have just been sticking with, you know, doing doing the actual pre-tapes, which is, you know, where our sort of passion lied. Yeah. For me, for me at the show, I've only ever done the pre-tapes. I, I came in as Sean's assistant, actually. So I was assisting for him. And then I, I never moved outside of the pre-tapes, just did the pre-tapes with him. Well, the pre-taped segments are great. And for me, one of my favorite sections of the show, I kind of have a specific question that each one of the shorts kind of made me think about, not necessarily about the short itself, but about the process. And I, I hope that you guys could fill me in on some of that. One of them, Papyrus, that's one of my favorites. One of the things that I noticed is it's got a great use of cinematic language. And the reason why I think it felt cinematic was because you were using tropes or using the language of typical language of cinema to tell these stories in a very cinematic way. Is that something you guys study in a in an overt way when you look at films and you go, oh, I see why that looks so cool or why it tells the type of a story? Just to speak for both of us, because we actually co-edited that piece together. That piece to us, I think that was what really like jump-started a lot of stuff for us. Because it was like the first, we were still like very early in our careers. Like, Ryan, you might have been like 23. I think I was 25 when we cut that. Like, yeah, I was 23. It was like the first piece that like went went viral. And we were like, oh my God, like th this was a big thing. But when we got the script, it was written by Julio Torres, who, who was a writer at that show for, I think, three seasons. And he he was so great at just like making these sort of like offbeat little observations. And when we got the script, it didn't fully gel with us. I remember Ryan and I were like, like, what is this going to look like? What is this going to be? And it was directed by this guy, Dave McCary, who, who we started our careers at that show editing for. And he's what what we really loved about Dave in terms of like the cinematic language was like he was very uncompromising in the sense of like he would try and make the pieces as truthful to whatever you were parroting as possible. So I think like having Ryan Gosling and doing that piece as sort of like this like strange character study that, you know, like if you watch the pacing of those cuts, it's not as like rapid fire as like some of the other pieces we do. It's a lot more labored and takes its time and i think that's half the success of that piece it takes its time and it really winds up and that only like lends to the piece and i think that's sort of something you learn at snl like cinematic approach and studying all of that it's like you almost have to understand all if not most genres of film right because you're constantly parodying them whether it's like sound design, score, like you have to understand almost the cinematic grammar of that. And especially because you sometimes only have 24 hours to cut a piece, you need to have like a basic fundamental understanding of cine the cinematic grammar of multiple genres so that you can just hop right into a piece. So I think Papyrus more so than a lot of pieces we did really lent itself to sort of being able to jump into like that genre of a dramatic character study, almost like a Darren Aronofsky film or something. I remember that piece in particular, that one shot until 6 a.m. in the morning on Saturday. And, you know, the way that SNL works is you need a cut. You need it done by 8 p.m. for dress rehearsal. And I remember when I saw the footage for that, I being like a little nervous because I was like, this is so well shot and it's so cinematic. And they spent a lot of money to like have a car rig. So I was like, it's sort of at this point, it's shot really well and the script's really good. It's kind of up to us to screw up. And I remember being like, this is not your typical SNL piece. It's slow and methodical. And there's a very cinematic approach to it. And 
Sean and I have always sort of had the same taste in movies and TV through our whole life. So that one, Sean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I did the overnight on that one all night. And then I sort of handed you the keys at 6 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, we, we switched off and you came back, if I remember, at like noon or one o'clock. But we had a really special moment because we both weren't understanding that it wasn't fully gelling, like the script in terms of like how they were going to pull it off. And I remember when I saw you had assembled half of it and there was that part where he has that interaction with Chris Red and Chris Red's like, where do you, where else do you even see this font? And he smashes the bottle and just seeing Ryan Gosling's commitment to that performance, we had like a, oh shit moment. The thing about SNL, is sometimes you get a piece. It's like when your fishing pole like bends over, it's like, oh shit, we got a big one. It's it, what Ryan said, it's on us to screw up. And I remember we had like just such a special moment at 6 a.m. being like, oh man, I think we got it. We got a good one here. Yeah, we have a winner. I also remember you walking in and I showed you that that tape. It's, it's in the cut of Ryan Gosling yelling, I know what you did. And it's like <laughs> such a committed performance for such an insanely ridiculous premise that I was like, okay, this piece is really going to work. And it played 10 to 1 and it almost got cut. Yeah. Yeah, it almost got cut. It played in the last 10 minutes of the show. That's like the cut zone. And I remember like us being in the edit room, just like, oh my God, we might, we might not make air. And it aired 10 to 1. It aired like right in that, that cut zone. So very proud that we, we made it. It is a full on, like he just bought into that as a character that was 100%, might as well have been in a $100 million movie. The Grouch is another classic take on the Joker. What do you guys do to speed up the process? Like you were just saying, like playing kind of tag team editors and probably editing while they were shooting. Like you can't wait until the whole thing's shot, right? You didn't wait till 6 a.m. to start cutting. You, you were cutting through the night. To speak a little bit to the process of how SNL works is we usually have a, a team of assistant editors. My assistant editor, Paul Del Gesso, is great, who will basically, they'll be ingesting the footage and making string outs, action to cut. So per setup, action to cut with overhead markers. This way we can like look at it and we can know basically any of these takes, if we need to go really fast, we can find them super easily and pop them in. So they're doing that as they're shooting. And then Typically, Sean and I will come in about three hours after the shoot starts and start cutting scenes as they're being shot. So the footage is basically being shuttled back and forth between 30 rocks. So we're kind of essentially keeping up with camera, which becomes very taxing all the way up until Saturday night. The grouch specifically that they started shooting like early Friday morning. And this was like right. This was like pre-COVID. It was the fall before COVID. So that was back when the film unit could like go they used to go physically to places, right? They were like all over the city. I probably started at one in the afternoon, two in the afternoon. And like that itself is sort of the classic SNL film trailer parody. And like, those are interesting to cut because that that was directed by Paul Briganti, who, who Ryan and I worked with at the show for years. Amazing director, amazing person. And like, I remember he kept saying to me because like the way that works, it's like, it's hard because you're almost editing these individual scenes and they're like almost like vignettes. Again, it's like what we were speaking about, like the cinematic language. If I remember, for example, in Grouch, there's a part where Bert and Ernie get mugged in, in an alley and get dabbed. And that was shot like Paul shot like a full scene from start to finish. You see the guys walking and then the robber shoulders them and then they have this whole confrontation. And I remember while Paul was on set, that was one of the first things they shot. It was one of the first things I was cutting together and I was sending him 
him that scene, like just sending him Dropbox links. And I remember we went like a couple rounds and he was just like, just take the main essentials. I don't need the beginning and the end, but it's hard when, you know, at SNL, because it's such a unique thing, you're working parallel with production. It's like hard to imagine that until you have all the pieces of the puzzle there. Because even I remember at the end of the day, they got like a uh, stand-in for David Harbour and just started shooting a bunch of B-roll. The grouch guy going down the steps, that's not actually David Harbour, that's a stand-in. But it's like, until you have all that B-roll and all the extra stuff, it's like hard to get a scene. And I actually remember, usually at SNL, you stay until like six, seven in the morning on Saturday and until you have like a full cut. It might not be sound design but like you have something that's standing on its feet but i remember that piece specifically like they went until late in the morning and it's hard to take these vignettes and make it a cohesive whole that feels like it's really ebbing and flowing into each other so i remember i like tapped out at two in the morning and was like i'll just come back at six you know i'll get three hours of sleep and come back once i can take a bird's eye view at all this stuff and that was actually very helpful for me. Again, it's like these film trailer parodies, like they're big in scope. You know, when they do an actual movie trailer, they have a full hour and a half, two hour movie that they're condensing into two, two minutes and change where like, we're faking that. We don't actually have that. We're trying to take all these little vignettes and little pieces of run and gun B-roll because they're running out of daylight or something and trying to make it seem like this is a legitimate, like this is based off a two and a half hour movie or something. So I'm so proud of that piece. Well, the audience just started applauding halfway through. When that happened, it, again, it's like having a fish on the end of your pole, just like we did it. Like, oh my God, you know, because sometimes it doesn't work out that way at SNL. Like that's the other side of SNL. It's like when a piece bombs and you just, you know, you got two hours of sleep, you and your team killed yourselves. You're just like, oh man. But SNL is also such a fun, interesting place because I can't think of anywhere else where you work that hard for so many hours and then you literally get to, you hit export, 10 minutes later, it's on air and you're sitting with your team that you guys just worked for 30 hours, like nonstop scrambling. And then you get to see whether or not the audience loves it or hates it. And it's in such real time. And I remember that one watching on air and being like, man, the audience absolutely loved this piece. Yeah. And it's also, that's, that's the other great thing about SNL too, is it's such a special place and it's so individual in, in terms of like the industry, because it's like, even if a piece bombs, you get cut from air, like you don't, you don't make the actual live show, you get to swing again next week. You know, a lot of jobs like TV, long form movies, you work for months and it bombs at the box office or it gets bad reviews. It's like, oh man, well, that was six, nine months where like SNL, it's like, it is a full on marathon for two days. But you know, if it doesn't work out, it's like, okay, this time next week, let's try again. <laughs> The other thing I noticed uh, with the Grouch, and you were talking about how much the audience loved it, it's a, an interesting choice that you hear the audience reacting to the short because you wouldn't have to do that, right? You could just literally play the short, turn off the microphones in the studio and let it play. But they don't. They, you get to hear the audience laughing along, which I think is great. I mean, listen, it's either the most soul-crushing thing <laughs> on earth or it's like the greatest feeling. It's like the greatest feeling on earth. It's like you're, all, you're always chasing that high, you know what I mean? Where like an audience really like goes crazy for a piece because there's just no other environment, you know, in this industry where you really get that immediate gratification. Is there anything else you guys do to prepare ahead of time? I think I noticed in the Grouch piece that there were shots from 
the Joker movie. So all that stuff gets brought in. Are you looking at a script going, oh, I need this sound effect, this sound effect or whatever? A hundred percent. Usually when we get, we get scripts on Wednesday night, usually Thursday have a pre-pro call with the director. And I, in the meantime, am going through the script and marking things like with a highlighter being like, here, I know we're going to need X sound effects. Here, I know we're going to need these sound effects. And then I'll mark with a different color where we need music. And I'll have a call with my assistants being like, this is what we're going to need. And then I'll do a lot of preliminary pulls based on what I think the piece should sound like. A lot of it's just pulling a lot of music and sound effects for stuff like stock footage, like using actual shots from the movies. That stuff actually doesn't really come to us until we start editing. So we know in our minds like, okay, we're going to have to use shots from these trailers, but we don't actually get that stuff cleared until we're like in the thick of it on Friday. So a lot of that stuff comes later, but yeah, for the most part, we're doing a ton of sound work prior to starting because for these digital shorts, there's just, there, it's so important for them to sound also like they've been fully sound designed and they haven't, we're just doing all the sound design. So when I first started doing the shorts, I would actually take a premiere project and do sound before I even saw any footage at all. I would do sound design like the day before I started editing just to make sure I had all my sound beds in. And then I could just solely focus on the picture and I could know that if I dropped footage in, it would at least sound like it was in the environment where I think it wouldn't be beneficial for us with how fast we work to be cutting and then sound designing after we kind of have to do it as we go or beforehand. That's like an interesting thing in SNL. Like that's one of the biggest lessons that I have taken from that show is how important sound is to a piece. And at SNL, we are the sound designers. There's like no backup. Again, you do like a horror movie tra uh, parody or something. The scoring on that stuff is such a nightmare, right? Because like you, you see like the new Scream or Halloween, it's like there's so much sound design and scoring. You need your piece to feel legitimate. It's almost like a calming thing because you know you're going to get two hours of sleep. You know it's just going to be an insane marathon for the next day. So like what I always did was when I came in on Friday, I would spend an hour two hours, just pull sound effects, mark up the script, pull score, pull a bunch of different music tracks. And that way it's like, you're like set into like, okay, I know I'm going to use this score for this beat. I know like I, I have all this work already done for me so that later in the process, when you're in the thick of it and doing writer's notes, producer's notes, cast member notes, you know, you have already those sound beds built or those that work already out of the way. So it makes your life as you're heading toward the 1130 cutoff that much more easy and you're like you feel settled in going into the day most of the editing that i do i'm using temp score which i know is going to get replaced but you guys that, that's got to be music that is licensable or scored so where are you getting music from yeah we we mostly just pull from S snl has the nbc like stock library so it'll take us like sean was saying i mean usually a little over an hour to really look through everything and make sure we're pulling the right stuff. I actually just did a sketch this past weekend. It was like a bank robbery piece with the app Be Real. And in the end, we had a song, it's called Be Real, very famous song. And they were like, we need to put this in the sketch. We have to license it. But the producers were obviously like, if that's gonna be way too expensive, we're not gonna be able to reach out to the estate that owns this song. So we were able to find a workaround and get a karaoke version of it that sounds similar and get that licensed. There's a lot of music supervisors at the show that can help us do stuff like that. But for the most part, Sean and I are really just digging into like pages and pages of sound libraries, trying to find the perfect score. 
I did a sketch last season called The Good Variant, which was like the please don't destroy guys. Basically, the joke was like, it's a good variant of COVID where like everything's awesome and everything's great. And one of the producers just was like friends with Chris Martin from Coldplay and was just like, hey, here's the sketch we're doing. Can we use your song? And Chris Martin was apparently like, yeah, great. I forget what the uh, sky full of stars, I think it is. And it just works so well for that piece. I don't know how it happens, but it's like you, you get to use these big songs in your piece. And that that always helps because sometimes you go to air using like an actual very popular song. And then after it airs for like the web and, you know, syndication and repeat viewings, usually you have to replace it for all the repeat stuff. That's always a bummer. Like after it's gone to the air and you have to find a sound alike or something. Right. Because if you have to find a sound alike, it's, it's the writers get so tied to the song, the actual song that got into the piece. And then you're looking for the sound alike and it never will sound quite right. So they're never going to be that happy with the piece that goes to the web with that song that walking in stat piece you were talking about the the difference in pacing and that kind of thing like the papyrus as you said is very restrained very few edits not a lot of fast edits and then you've got walking in statin and there is just a ton in there editorially lots of coverage lots of footage and i can't imagine doing that on a schedule like how do you cope what what do you do to be able to do something creatively and yet efficiently I mean, I, I think when you're you're faced with that much footage, it's very easy to get overwhelmed. It's very easy to look at this footage and realize like there's no real end in sight. So, and the best thing to do is just to start cutting, is to just make a decision. Because once you start, it's easy to start building on top of that. Like the most crippling part of being faced with that much footage on a timeline where you need to be on live air with full color, full mix in 24 hours, is just started. So like once you start, you can build on top of that. I don't, Sean, what do you think? No, I mean, I totally agree. The hardest, the hardest part of any editing job, SNL especially, is just that anxiety of five o'clock on a Friday or even four o'clock on a Saturday morning. You're just scared to death. Your heart is racing. It's 4 a.m. Like I have so much footage. It's a music video. The writers are going to come in at two. The director's going to be here at noon. Like I got to get a cut. It's like that thing of like, you never trust yourself. And I think that's something I very much struggle with as an editor. I'm sure, I, I mean, Brian and I talk about it all the time, but you have to be able to trust yourself after a certain point that we've done this before. I trust my instincts. We're going to get it into a good place. And once it's standing on its feet, even if it's a rough assemble, audio pops everywhere, it's not sound design, it's empty, you know there's issues that you need to work out. It's like once it's on its feet, then you can take a step back and go, oh, okay, this isn't working, uh, we can take this piece out. Specifically like walking in statin, that's a little bit of a different case because they actually shot that on a Monday, which was interesting because that week I ended up cutting two pre-tapes. <laughs> Like any like any music video, I call it the sauce. I always find you you pick the best performance and you almost cut it like it's a live performance. Our assistant editors, Ryan and I, will have them do stack sequences in Premiere, which is basically, and we learned this from one of our old editors that we used to assist for, Jeremiah Shuff. He used to be like Beyonce's music video editor. He's one of the best music video editors ever. And he taught us this trick of these stack sequences where you take all of your footage and you just stack it up, right? I've had stack sequences that are like 200 video layers long from SNL. It's the best way in an efficient manner 
to find the best take of a line or a certain performance because you just set your in and you just start unblinding video layers and you go, oh, okay, this isn't working. This isn't working. Oh, wait, this close up. And the way we'll have the assistant editors do it is they'll like color code. Once you like build out the music video in terms of performance and then you can start, okay, this is a perfect part for this B-roll. And then you get into the nitty gritty of like the sauce, we call it, the the pumps, the flash frames and stuff, all that little stuff that just makes it pop even more. Like that always comes last. Sometimes writers come into the room and they're like, this is like a trap video. It needs to be more exciting. But, you know, it's like two in the afternoon and you're like, that's coming. I know that just take, like we got to get the cut cut on its feet in terms of takes and performance. Ryan did this like awesome music video stew with Pete and and that shot until four in the morning, right, Ryan? And like I, I'm sure you, once you like do a couple music videos, you have certain things in in your arsenal. Stew shot until four in the morning, and that was a case of one where I didn't start until Saturday morning because there was it was such a big shoot in scope, and they were shooting so much coverage, and it took place in half in Santa's workshop and half was music video like in a basement and then also Pete driving in a rainy car at night so there was just a lot to edit in that so I didn't start that one until four in the morning a lot of what Sean's talking about like adding the bounces and stuff that's sort of just something that we pull from an arsenal like if we're doing a music video we know okay we're going to add some bounces here but Stu was a specific example of something that was off like a very specific music video it was the music video Stan And that didn't have any of that stuff. And they really wanted to keep it grounded and keep it very similar to what the music video was. So a lot of that was just straight cuts and stuff. And I remember that one, I actually don't think I had a cut until like maybe 3 p.m., 3.30 p.m. And the writers had already got in. So I was finishing up the cut while the writers came in, um, which is really stressful. Like as Sean was saying, the most important thing there is to get a cut done because then you can take a bird's eye view. Then you can start swapping takes but you just have to finish a cut first because if you don't finish a cut, like once 11.30 PM rolls around, you have to go to air. So if you have a cut done, at least you can go to air, you can go to air with that. But that one, I remembered we, we worked up until the, the very last moment because there are these scenes in Santa's workshop in that one. And originally those were like full scenes, like scripted scenes with dialogue. And I remember the writers being like, Every time we cut out to these scenes, it's sort of pulling the energy away from what this piece should be. So we worked with the guy, Eli Brigham, that made the music. And we were like, what if we made those part of the music video also? So we ended up just making those into like little music interstitials. So we completely recut those and they're no longer full scenes. They're just music interstitials that keep with the beat, keep with the song. But that was something that didn't happen until like, 5 30 p.m 6 p.m and then we were like scrambling to get that done and i remember when that one played on air being like people loved it as soon as the camera cranes down into the basement they were like oh this now i get it this is the stand music video and people started cheering and we were so relieved and uh, my assistant editor who is incredible Uh, Paul Del Gesso, he stayed up for 30 hours straight with that one because he was just trying, he was scrambling to make sure all the footage was ingested. And as soon as we read the script on Wednesday, I remember him and I being like, I think we, I think we got a hit here. I really think we just need to put the the metal and work super hard to get this one done. And yeah, that one I was super happy with. I remember hearing that because they were so stressed and it was like crazy. And I remember I was afraid to be in their edit room. So I just kind of stayed away. 
And I remember hearing the audience roaring over all the TVs on the 17th floor in 30 Rock. That's where like dance and how offices are. And I was just like, oh, the, the sketch had only started like 20 seconds before. And I was like, oh, man, they knocked it out of the park. What kind of watching of the stand video do you do to see the kinds of things that you need to pull off to make that feel real to the audience? Initially for that one, I remember I just watched it on my own. And I took notes in my notes app being like, okay, there's there's no like fades or dissolves or anything. So I was like, I think we just have to keep the straight cuts. And then I called up my assistant editor on the phone and I was like, this one doesn't have any of that poppy stuff. So we just need to keep this one grounded. And that one, somebody at the show pulled me the actual stand music video. So I was able to keep putting it in the source window and looking at it as I was editing to like make sure I was keeping it within the world of that music video. Because again, the writers were so adamant that they wanted that one to feel like a direct parody of stand. So yeah, that one, I think I watched, I think I watched that like at least five times before starting. And now, you know, we have to work so fast that there are things that I wish I included in there. But at the end of the day, it's I, I'm super happy with that one and how it came out. But yeah, I think that'll always happen. You always look at your pieces afterwards and be like, man, I wish I included this. A lot of the stew one comes from there's like a great shot of the, a car plunging off the bridge. And that would have been a great out for that video. And it's one of those ideas that as soon as you hit export and as soon as it goes to air, you're like sitting there being like, God damn it. We could have had a great out on this one. And that just came from watching that a million times, but I completely forgot about it and still haunts me till this day. The watching of any of these things, like the Joker parody, MacGruber even with watching a MacGyver episodes, I'm interested in your process of watching and thinking about these cultural touchstones and what makes them what they are. What are some of the other things that you're seeing when you're watching cultural touchstones that you're trying to mock or throw up as a satire? McGruber was one that I edited. Sean edited one of those two. There was three in the episode. I edited two and Sean edited one of them. But I remember when we got the McGruber and they were going to revive that character, I went and rewatched all of the original ones because I really wanted to understand the pace at which those were edited. Because I think a lot of the times SNL shorts can be cut way too fast and they can be mm -hmm. cut within an inch of their life where it's like hard to actually follow the jokes. And with McGruber, while they're edited really fast, each joke is given enough time to land. So I remember watching that one being like, we can hold on this a few extra frames or an extra second or two to make sure the audience gets it. Once you've done the initial reveal and the audience is on board for like, this is what the joke is, then you can start speeding up the pace. I think, I think sometimes though, it can be a trap though, falling into it. Last year we did a Squid Game music video with Pete and I was cramming watching Squid Game because I like hadn't watched any. And then I start cutting the music video and I'm like, okay, so nothing I watched is really lending itself to how I'm going <laughs> to cut this country music video with Pete and Rami Malek. I just remember ramming like four episodes of Squid Game and then sitting there on Friday night at 10 o'clock at night and almost laughing to myself. Oh, okay. <laughs> I hate to say it. There have been things we've both cut at SNL that are like based off of things that we've never watched before. It's a job and you're just rolling into every week and, you know, it's hard to watch a full season of television when you get a script that Wednesday night and you're like, oh, well, I got to cut this thing in, you know, two days. Talk to me a little bit about telling a narrative story in that short of amount of time. I think that that's a great question because the duels one that I remember Sean and I getting the script for that and being like, this is going to be super cinematic. And that was one of our earlier pieces. So our first cut of that, 
you try to keep it a little more grounded and you keep it loose. But then once you get into the actual like, okay, we need to actually hit an airtime, like this has to be three minutes, then you have to start really pacing it up. But for the most part, you'll keep your cuts fat, like the duel specifically, Sean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was a bit of a longer one. And then we started pasted up a lot on Saturday. We did co-edit that one together that it was like four years ago, I'm pretty sure. But I, I remember that was based on the favorite. So in terms of like the editing style, right, of the favorite, probably nothing to do with that film, but the cinematography and the framing, you watch that sketch, the framing is very based off of that film and not typical, I would say. The pacing of it is you don't want to tip it too quickly and that's supposed to feel like a cinematic piece. I remember trying to like take a step back, the camera would pull out to reveal Pete and Beck and Keenan in the middle of this duel. It's like once the roller coaster finally comes over the hill and goes down, you know, that's where the pace starts to pick up. It's like we would love if we had six minutes to let a piece really breathe and play out, but it's not the reality of that show. Sometimes a producer comes in and is like, this needs to be three minutes long or you're not going to make the show. And that's just the reality of a 90 minute live show where they go into the live show with four too many sketches. You know what I mean? That are like on the running. So it's sort of like a dog eat dog world. And one of the best ways to avoid that is be like, all right, guys, let's keep this below three minutes and 30 seconds. And I think we'll have like a fighting chance if it's good. You just try and get those jokes to just one after the other, just like train cars banging into each other, just keeping the pace up. What are the running times of some of those before you realize that they're too long? They're never like seven minutes. I mean, a lot of pieces that we've done are like five minutes and then they're like, you've got to get it down to three minutes. So we've become very good at killing our darlings very fast. And I also think SNL has sort of corrupted our editing sensibilities because- <laughs> Yeah, like, it's actually probably a good point. Well, because you look at stuff like The Duel and you're like, it shot so well. Like a lot of these shots are beautiful. I, as someone that loves film and loves the favorite, would love to hold on these shots. But also I, as someone that edits SNL digital shorts, knows that we have to cut away from these shots, knows that we have to get this thing down two minutes. So we're just sort of trained in a way where we're just like, we know we can't hold on these shots, even if it's a beautiful shot. We just know at the end of the day, this thing's going on air and it's going to be three minutes, three minutes, 30 seconds. But SNL is good in that way. One of the benefits of it is it really teaches you to not be precious. Ryan and I, before we were really at SNL and working with the film unit you know we, we were like budding filmmakers and we worked on our own stuff and it's like you do like a 12 minute short film and you're just taking months and overthinking everything we're like now when we go into other projects it's like oh yeah that seems funny but it's not benefiting what we're doing even though it looks beautiful and I'm proud of it and man was it a pain to get those shots off kill it it's not working. Take it out. It's so true. I, I actually just did a piece this past weekend where I was having a ton of trouble. There was an ending montage. It was for the Please Don't Destroy guys. We had an ending montage, all slow motion, beautiful set to classical music. And it took me like three hours to edit and really had to like dig deep and figure out how to cut this thing, even though it was only a 15 second montage. And I sent it out to the writers. And the first note I got back was, yeah, let's just cut that. It's not really working. And I was like, damn, I just spent so long trying to get this thing to work. Stayed till four o'clock in the morning to make this thing work. And then as soon as I cut it, I was like, oh, this makes perfect sense. Like now 
the piece is going to have a proper ending. It's sort of like we were just extending the piece to extend the piece. That brings up an interesting point, which is handling creative notes. Talk about not taking that stuff too personally because things are are so fast. You got to get a note and that note's got to be done instantly. It's not an indictment of you or your editing skills or somebody is like, this isn't working or this can be smoothed out. And especially at SNL, like kind of what we were talking about before, right? Like the hardest part is getting a piece on its feet. And even if you know there's problems, it's like the most important thing is just getting the first cut. Because once you have that first cut, you can step away. But I remember when we first started editing at the show and we'd be playing it down for the director or the writers for the first time, you're almost like pinching yourself. You're like wincing like every time there's a nasty cut or like you haven't figured out like a smooth transition or the sound is just terrible. But it's like, that's part of just maturing as an editor. You just realize that we know it's going to work. We, we're all mature filmmakers in this industry let's just make sure that the foundation is there and we can always smooth that out it's like what ryan was just saying about cutting that montage that took him a long time you know it's going to make the piece better so even though you just spent hours trying to make it work it's not going to work like you, you have to be able to take that criticism yeah it's also recognizing that when you're given a note everyone's giving a note for one common goal like they're giving notes to make the piece as funny as it possibly can be. So Sean and I have come to understand that and we don't take notes to heart really. I mean, a lot of times we'll send a cutout that we think is in great shape and we'll get 25 notes back. You know, we'll maybe piss and moan for a, you know five minutes about it. And then we'll be like, we, we can do that for five minutes, but we don't have 10 minutes to do that. We have to start moving. And then once you start working through those notes, you're like, okay, well now I can see the forest through the trees. And you start seeing that this piece is getting better. A joke that I thought was funny, yeah, it was funny, but there's three jokes after that are just as funny. You're really just working towards one common goal and just making sure that the piece is as funny as it possibly can be. Yeah, there's a writer, Dan Bulla, at SNL that he's so good and he's so funny. And I remember on that Walking in Staten piece, he gave his first round of notes and he like did a little preface of, sorry, sorry Sean, I'm just going to say a couple things. And it was just like, this isn't working at all. We need to change this. But it's like, I almost appreciate that more when you're just straightforward because everybody at SNL, it is a special place, probably because of the timeline where you don't put up with that crap of commercials where people are just putting their thumbprint on it. Even if you don't agree with an opinion, right? You know, it's coming from a good place. It's always to help the piece and it's always to better the show. Uh, this is a little bit of a personal question for me, but question for Sean. Are you finding that it is a challenge to slow yourself down in a feature film after cutting so much shorter form stuff definitely definitely i think like it's been interesting working on a feature compared to working in short form because you're thinking a, a lot more about story and a lot less about whether or not these cuts are exactly working in this little scene like you're really thinking about story it's definitely been a change it's also interesting for so many years working in premiere especially at snl and then going to avid that's been sort of like an interesting part of it too but i definitely think in terms of the storytelling aspect of it it, it, it is really interesting i honestly am enjoying it so far it's cool have you always cut at SNL in Premiere? Yeah. Yeah, always. I, I think it'd be really hard to cut in Avid there or anything else because we, we're just doing so many graphics and working with so much mixed media. It'd be really hard to be able to pull stuff in. I mean, I've only edited briefly in Avid, but I know it struggles with that. But I also know it's great for long-term storytelling. 
I think people arguing about NLEs is just like sort of a pointless conversation and it really annoys me. It's just whatever works for the project. <laughs> I'm, I'm 100% in your camp on that. Have either one of you guys thought about directing these? Yeah. I mean, Sean and I think about directing all the time. We've directed a bunch of films and it's funny because every director we work with started as an editor and that's just something interesting we found. And it's great when you work with a director that's been an editor because they think like an editor, you know, we would love to direct. And that's, that's sort of something that we've been thinking about a lot. I don't want to sound biased, but the best directors I've worked with so far in my career are more than often previously editors, especially working in short form and especially working in television. I find a lot of the times that editors are, are sharper with that, which isn't, you know, not to say, obviously there's so many amazing directors that have never edited before, but largely a lot of the best directors we've worked with were our former editors. The only other thing I would like to talk about is the post department at SNL in general. I say this all the time, it is the best post team in the business. The, the people at SNL, the assistant editors are just the hardest working people you will find. The visual effects artists, I mean, they do the impossible every single week. We might sound like we're crying, like, oh, we started this like music video at four in the morning on Saturday and we're there were so many people behind the scenes syncing that footage, ingesting it, making those string outs, making those markers to make the footage that more digestible and easy to navigate. The post-department team at SNL, it's come a long way. When I first started, it was a very bare bones. And, you know, there's people like Kelly Lyon and Adam Epstein, who I know you've talked to before, who really paved the way for it. But back then, there weren't that many assistant editors. Like when I used to assist for SNL, it was really just me and Ryan would come in. And now it's it's so much bigger of a thing. And it needs to be because the pieces keep growing. And especially with COVID, I think we can understate it enough. The entire post department team at SNL, they are just the best of the best of the best the hardest working people you'll come across. Every single one of them has saved my life multiple, multiple times on multiple occasions. And the assistant editors, they're, I love, they're not credited as assistant editors anymore. They get credited as editors because so much of what they do and so much of the assistants that Sean and I work with are also assembling scenes and they're doing a great job. A lot of them are great editors in their own right. You asked the question about what we do when we have a huge volume of footage. Like a lot of times Sean and I will be like, it's a 12 page script. If you could assemble pages seven to nine on top of doing all the ingesting on top of doing all the string outs, they work super hard on making these scenes feel good and sound designing. And yeah, we, we can't understand enough how, how much we love working with them. And we appreciate everyone there. Our old assistant editor, Chris Salerno, he's now editing pre-tape shorts after years of just being the person in the background who just put his head down and did the work and worked so hard. And now he's graduated to editing shorts himself. They're just the hardest working people in the business and they do amazing work. They save our lives. What's the staff like size-wise? And then how is all the stuff pulled off technically? In terms of staff size, like for, for the visual effects department, I think we have about 15 visual effects people now. It might even be more, honestly. It, be more. It, grew, it grew exponentially after COVID. It's funny, if you look at any one of our shorts, I mean, Sean and I have done edits that have 
40 VFX shots in them. And those are all done in one day. And they're done incredibly. For assistant editors, we have about three assists per piece because they're just shooting so much. And then we have a great post supervisor, Matt Yonks. We, we have sound mixers inside the building. Yeah, color's done out of house. And usually we, li we literally send a looks EDL in the morning of all the shots. They're coloring all throughout the day as, we, as we're going. And then we send a cut. Our great assist will try to keep up with us and overcut the color while we're still making changes. The typical SNL day is they'll, if they shoot on Friday, they'll typically shoot Friday morning, afternoon until Friday evening, night, typically. But a lot of the times they will shoot Friday night into Saturday morning. And what happens is there are media managers on set who take that footage because they shoot in studios in Manhattan. The media managers take that footage and they are connected to the sand back at 30 Rock and they send the footage and ingest it to the sand. And then there is a team of assistant editors. It's typically three assists per pre-tape who are then taking that footage, bringing it into Premiere, syncing it, logging it, making markers, stringing it out, doing all that stuff. Ryan will come in at, you know, two, two in the afternoon and start cutting. You cut until maybe six in the morning on Saturday, get a uh, piece on its feet. While that's happening, assistant editor has sent a uh, look CDL, we call it, which is just basically like a shot from every setup, right? So that the colorists, the colors are Josh Bohosky of Visual Creatures and then uh, Elias Muspolis. And they start first thing in the morning on Saturday, they start setting looks with the DPs and they send screenshots to the directors so that the directors can approve looks while they're in the edit room at 30 Rock. Directors usually come in at noon and start working on the pieces and writers typically start popping in around 2, 3 p.m. And that's where you really take off. Producers will come in maybe around like 4 or 5 p.m. and they'll give their notes, do whatever. And you're working up until maybe like 7, 7.30. And then at that point, you send to mix. Mix is usually happening in 30 Rock on a lower floor. And they're, they're mixing and your assistant is connecting the color if you're even trying to get color for dress. Piece may air at, you know, dress starts at 8. If you're earlier in the show, you'll, you'll go to dress at 8. 8.30 and usually more often than not, you have a ton of notes. You're trying to make your four minute piece that went to dress 3.15 or something. So you're just slicing and dicing until like 10.30 at night. While that's going on, you need to be cutting across the mix. This way, when you send to mix for air, the mixer can see where you physically made changes. They can like take the 5-1 mix and they see it at the bottom of the AAF or OMF and they see like, where you pulled pieces out or you added new stuff. And then your assistant editor, meanwhile, is sending to color any new, we call them pickups. If you added new shots between dress and air, they're sending pickups to the color house. There's also visual effects. We've had, I think my record at SNL was 82 visual effects in a pre-take. Had to be done in a day. And while that's happening, you're almost like cutting your losses because if you shot in 4K, right? You want your VFX to come back at 4K, but what we kind of, just to make the process easier, usually more often than not, you start getting VFX back at 1080 because it just takes too long to render out. It's hard for us to explain, but the race between dress and air, there's just nothing like it on planet Earth. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've hit export 
knowing the control room is physically calling the edit room. Like you're you're going to air in five minutes. There are so many times we export and we haven't even watched the piece down. You're like watching it live on the TV, just like rocking back and forth, <laughs> like feeling nauseous. And and things have gone wrong on air before. I've seen it happen. And luckily, not that many. Ryan, do you remember that piece we did? I think it was Scrudge where I was like sprinting down to the mix because we weren't going to get a mix in for air. And I was like, just use, use the mix from the export, just throw a compressor on it. I like ran down to the control room. <laughs> That's the like craziness, the heartbreak, but also the fun of that place. I, I just remembered a quick story about something similar as I did a piece called Tiny Horse, which was just basically Timothy Chalamet talking to a literal tiny horse. So there was like 65 visual effects shots. The horse wasn't there. They had to re they had to create all them. So it was just him talking to plates the whole time. That was during COVID and we weren't allowed to have more than one person in the room. So like I was working with two directors at the time. One director was in the room. The other one was sitting outside, but there was a glass window. And my assistant editor was working all the way down the hall. And I remember we I was like, I don't have any of these shots in. We have to have this thing done in like 16 minutes. So I was like, I need to get up. I ran down the hall. And I looked at my assistant editor, Paul Del Gesso, was, was at a standing desk, crouched over, just conforming all these VFX shots so quick. And there were producers standing outside the room being like, I don't know, this looks bad. And I'm like, this, it feels terrible. And then when you see it hit air with those shots in, you're like, there's no relief like it. And I've never worked anywhere else where like I felt that insane amount of stress coupled with this insane amount of relief almost immediately. It goes from 15 minutes where I'm like, this is never going to work to 15 minutes later. You're like, wow, I, I don't know how that worked, but it's just because the people that work at SNL and the team that we work with is so dialed in and so diligent. Yeah. And without them, we would not be able to get any of these pieces on air. Ryan and Sean, thank you so much for spending some time with us. It's really interesting to hear about this process and thanks for shedding some light on it. Steve, thank you so much. Been such a fan of the podcast for so long. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're really excited. It's great to talk to you. That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, be able to see all the things we talked about in this interview, head on over to aotc.borisfx.com slash art-of-the-cut, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to Sean and Ryan McElwraith. Thanks to Dylan Giovanetto for editing today's podcast. And thanks to our partner, Boris FX, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check them out at borisfx.com and jumpdesktop.com cut. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening. And please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that they should subscribe right here for more great Art of the Cut interviews every week. Mm -hmm.